so my validation, my confirmation for you to send to John the baptizer is that you see the glory of the Lord. You will see the glory of the Lord as I suffer and die for my people. You will see the glory of the Lord when I return in glory. But right now you see the glory of the Lord because of the message I preach and the sick that I heal. This is the glory of the Lord that is the essence of the diaconate. So I want to talk to us this morning about two things. One, of course, I want to talk to us about the diaconate. We know about that. We've been talking about that for weeks now. God has brought our church to the place where the elders of this church have put forth the two candidates for deacon that we feel prayerfully led to put forth before the body. And last week, the Disciples Fellowship, the covenant members of Disciples Fellowship, unanimously affirmed the two individuals that the elders brought forth as deacons, both Doug and Josh. And so today is the day that we will ordain them and install them in the office of deacon here at Disciples Fellowship. So we know that that's what we're going to talk about this morning, but I also want to talk about something far greater than the diaconate, something far greater than even what God has done here in this body, and that is the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ our Lord came in glory. What does that mean? What does the glory of God mean? We talk about that so frequently in the church, the glory of God, and God does all things for His own glory. We bring it up so frequently, and rightfully so, but we bring it up so frequently that it should be something that we have given thought to and given some understanding to. What is the glory of God? What does it mean? when we talk about the glory of God. So I want to turn to a familiar passage of Scripture. If you have your Bible, join me in John chapter 1. Familiar passage that we will all be familiar with. John chapter 1 is a passage that speaks to us quite profoundly about the glory of Jesus Christ. So I'd like to read the first 18 verses, and then I'll read over from verse 29 down through verse 34. From John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Now the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I have came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness and said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Gracious Father, we are humbled by your word, for it is divine, it is supernatural. These are not the words of man. These are not just eloquent, poetic words. These are words of the very God. Impress upon our thoughts who we stand before now. We stand in the presence of God. You are here in a special way. When your people gather together, your presence is here in a way that's more profound, more true, than when we are alone. We praise you for this, Father. We praise you because your Spirit is here among us. We ask, Lord, humbly, that your Spirit would reign over this time. Thank you for your church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this passage that we just read briefly here is obviously a passage that's full of the glory of God. John speaks to us about Jesus coming here to earth and bringing this display, this manifestation of the very glory of the God that we cannot see. We could spend weeks unpacking this passage, but we'll, just, we'll say just a few things about this this morning. The first thing to notice about this passage is just the contrast and how John describes the glory of Jesus in terms of light. And that's a theme that he carries throughout his gospel and he carries it through his epistles and he carries it through the book of the Revelation. This theme of the light, the light coming. And now that the light has come, we are now in the light and we also are the light. But then there's another theme of beholding the glory of God. What does it mean John, to behold the glory of God? Are you speaking about beholding, perceiving the glory of God with some type of spiritual sense? Or are you talking about perceiving the glory of God with a physical sense, with sight and hearing and experiencing the glory of God in a physical way? What do you mean, John? Well, he doesn't tell us specifically what he means, but he does go on when he talks about John the baptizer, John the apostle writes about John the baptizer's experience with the glory of God. 
in which he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now clearly in that context, John the baptizer is talking about a glory that he perceives with his physical eyes. Look and see, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So at the very least, John the Apostle is talking about a perception of the glory of God that is both physical and spiritual. So what is this glory of God? How do we understand the glory of God? Again, it is something that's so fundamental to our witness here in this world, to our faith. It is something so fundamental that we should have some understanding of what we are talking about when we talk about the glory of God. So when I think about the glory of God, I believe that the scriptures reveal to us the glory of God in three categories or three aspects or three forms or again, three glories that help us to think about the glory of God. And the first type of glory of God, or the first aspect of God's glory, is God's glory that He has just by virtue of being God. His nature, His person, His being, His supernatural essence is, by definition, glorious. And so God cannot not be glorious. To not be glorious would mean that He would cease being God. To be God must mean that He is glorious by nature. This is the type of glory or the aspect of God's glory that fills the Old Testament. In fact, the Old, the Old Covenant explains God's glory almost exclusively in this aspect. When we see and experience and encounter the glory of God in the Old Covenant, virtually always it is this type of glory, the type of glory that exists just because of who God is. It's seen in oftentimes light or whiteness, more white than any other, th- any other white could be, or uh, power, or clouds of glory, all different kinds, but all of it relates back to God's glorious nature just by virtue of being God. He is glorious just because His nature is to be glorious. Now, this type of glory is filled in the Old Covenant. The Old Testament is filled with this type of glory of God. We see it, for example, Exodus chapter 19. God comes down on the Mount Sinai to meet with the Israelite children. The the mountain shakes, the cloud comes down, the trumpets blast, and the thunder roars and everything. That's the glory of God being manifested just by virtue of His presence because He is glorious. Or we see it as he fills the tabernacle and the tabernacle is dedicated. Or later on the temple is dedicated and he fills the temple with his glory. Or we see him lead the Israelite children through the wilderness by this pillar of fire and this pillar of cloud. Or uh, Exodus chapter 32, Moses gets a glimpse of this type of glory. Or Moses meets with God in this glorious way in the tent of meeting and he has the veil that has to cover the illumination that comes from his face and on and on we could go. This is almost exclusively the type of glory or the aspect of God's glory that we're confronted with in the Old Testament scriptures. However, when we come to the New Testament, that type of glory is almost completely absent. Jesus came to reveal the Father. She said so himself. He's here to reveal the Father. He says to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus came to show us the God that we cannot see. So Jesus is the manifestation of the God that we cannot see, the God that's invisible. But Jesus comes and reveals to us this Father that we cannot see, but at the same time, He also veils Him. Have you ever thought about this? That Jesus both reveals the Father and veils the Father at the same time. 
He reveals the Father. He shows us what the Old Covenant had not yet shown us about the Father. But at the same time, He does veil some aspects of the Father, specifically the type of glory that the Old Testament Scriptures write to us about. Jesus comes in this glory that's just the glory of His being, of His presence, of His essence, is almost not seen. It only shows up a couple of times in the New Testament. We think of the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus' glory is exposed, but that's only to three people. Then we think of, for example, Saul on the road to Damascus, and the risen Christ appears to Saul in a light that's so bright that's blinding. We see it there. It'll show up again in the Revelation when the Son of God returns. But outside of just a couple of occasions, this magnificent, bright, illuminating glory of God is largely veiled when Jesus comes in the flesh. So what's revealed in the Old Covenant is veiled in the New Covenant. Now this aspect of the glory of God just by nature, this is what Jesus will ultimately, when He returns, and we live with Him, those who are in Christ, we live with Him for eternity, this is the glory of God that we will behold in its fullness for eternity. However, here in the New Testament age, that aspect of the glory of God is largely hidden. Now, there's another aspect of the glory of God that Jesus reveals that was, in fact, veiled in the Old Testament. So the opposites are happening here. There's this other aspect of the glory of God that we see in His sacrificial suffering and death on behalf of His unworthy people. This is the glory of God. We are told that Jesus on the cross, naked and bloody and beaten and dying, is not something to be pitied. We're told that that is the glory of God. Jesus didn't stoop down to die on the cross for us. Jesus stood tall in all of the glory of God because it is the character of God to sacrificially give Himself for His unworthy chosen people. And so the glory of God, quite ironically, was manifested clear and bright as Jesus hung on the cross dying. Ironically, the whole world thinks that that was His moment of utter shame, when in reality that was His moment of greatest glory, because He was revealing an aspect of the glory of God that the Old Testament Scriptures had veiled. We see just hints of this in the Old Testament. We see just hints of the, the character of, the God, of God, the, the glory of God who will sacrificially suffer and die in place of His people. We see that hinted at in the Old Testament. For example, Leviticus 17 and verse 11 will tell us about how sin cannot be removed unless there is a blood sacrifice. And then the whole sacrificial system comes into place and is developed in order to teach the Israelite children that sin results in death. Sin must be paid for in blood. We also see some hints, some suggestions of this, for example, in that occasion when Abraham almost sacrifices Isaac. And we hear in the words of Abraham, when Abraham says to his son Isaac that God will provide for himself the lamb. And so we see suggestions of this. 
But without Jesus coming, without the new covenant, without the new testament, without the new testament church age, we would largely be ignorant of this aspect of the glory of God. The glory of God as manifested in his sacrificial suffering for his people and death for his unworthy chosen bride. So this aspect of the glory of God veiled in the Old Testament, exposed in the New Testament, contrasted against the glory of God by means of light and brightness and whiteness, just the glory of God by by virtue of who He is, exposed, revealed in the Old Covenant, veiled in the New Covenant, to be unveiled once again when Jesus returns. So those are two aspects of the glory of God that I think are helpful for us to think through. But there is a third aspect of the glory of God, And that is the glory that we are shown by Jesus' ministry of gospel preaching and kind acts. We are told that this is the glory of God as well. The, The glory of Jesus as he preaches this gospel of salvation, as he commits these acts of kindness to people, as he heals and restores and casts out demons and does all these acts of kindness, we're told that this likewise is the glory of God. Now this is the type of glory of God that is revealed in both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant speaks of the God whose glory requires that His people go and tell others about Him. The same God who uh, angers Jonah because Jonah doesn't want to go and preach this gospel message to the hated Ninevites. Or this same God who in places like Isaiah 42 will say to His Son, it's too small of a thing. For you to just be the Messiah to the Jews only. You, I will make you a light to the world. I will make you the Messiah to the world. So this same God in the Old Covenant also reveals to us not only this gospel message, this message of salvation by faith, but also reveals to us that He is a God of kindness, a God of compassion. We talked last week about the character of God and how it is God's character to be especially concerned for the vulnerable and the uh, disadvantaged, particularly among His people. That is His nature. That is His glory. He reveals this to us in the Old Covenant as well as in the New Covenant. In the New Covenant, Jesus comes preaching this same message. For example, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 35, Jesus went throughout the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So He goes about proclaiming this message of salvation and proclaiming these good works done in the name of God. He also, we also are told in Luke chapter 4, this is the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry here in Nazareth. He goes into the synagogue. He's given the Isaiah scroll. He unrolls it and reads from the place where he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he begins here by announcing, this is what I'm here to do. I'm here to reveal the glory of the Lord, the glory of God, by means of my gospel preaching and by means of my kindness, setting the prisoners free, healing the sick, restoring sight to the blind, etc., etc., Later on, when John the baptizer, the very cousin of Jesus, is in prison and thinking that he's been forgotten about and he's wondering, was this cousin of mine really the Messiah after all or not? You know, I'm sitting here just forgotten about in this prison. And he sends message, a message to Jesus to say, are you really the one that we've been waiting for? Are you really the Messiah? And the messengers come to Jesus and Jesus says, go back to John and tell them this. Give John this validation. Give John this confirmation that I am here to reveal to you the glory of God. Say to him, 
Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So my validation, my confirmation for you to send to John the baptizer is that you see the glory of the Lord. You will see the glory of the Lord as I suffer and die for my people. You will see the glory of the Lord when I return in glory. But right now you see the glory of the Lord because of the message I preach and the sick that I heal. This is the glory of Jesus. This is the glory of the Lord that is the essence of the diaconate. This is the only aspect of God's glory that we as His people can imitate. We cannot glorify God by seeking to imitate the glory of His character. That would be offensive to God for us to assume that we can imitate God's essence, God's being, and bring glory to God. That would be ridiculous. That would be insulting to God. So we cannot bring glory to Him by imitating the glory of His character. Neither can we bring glory to Him by imitating His sacrificial death and suffering. There is a sense in which we are called to suffer as Christ suffered for others. But our suffering, even our death for others, is not the same. It's categorically different. We don't die in anyone's place. We don't die to bring salvation to anyone. Only Jesus does that. So we cannot imitate the glory of God in His being, in His nature, in His essence. Neither can we imitate the glory of God in His sacrificial suffering. It is only by imitating His gospel preaching and especially His acts of kindness and compassion that we bring glory to God through imitation. It's been said, you've heard this said, imitation is the highest form of flattery. Is that always true? No, it's not. There's a lot of cases in which imitation is not flattery at all. Imitation is insulting. When someone imitates in such a way as to steal what is yours, that's not flattering. That's insulting. That's Sometimes we call that plagiarism. To imitate someone in such a way that's taking what's exclusively theirs and calling it your own or trying to make that your identity, that's not, insu- that's not flattering or encouraging to someone, that's insulting. In the same way, to imitate what we cannot receive from God, what we cannot be like, when we cannot be like His essence, His being, or we cannot be like His sacrificial death, To imitate Him in those ways would not be glorifying to Him. It would be insulting. Imitation is only flattery when we take some good aspect of another and not take it from them, not steal it from them, not take their identity from them, but instead follow in their steps. And that is the essence of the diaconate ministry. That is the office of the deacon. The office of the deacon is to lead God's people in loving one another and in loving the world in such a way that it is their gifting and their very office to lead God's people in imitating the aspect of the glory of God in which we can, the aspect in which we can bring God the most glory through imitation, and that is imitating His acts of compassion and kindness and imitating Him in His love for His bride and His love for the world. 
What a profound thing. That God has given to the church not only gifted people that are gifted in this way, but He has created the very office to make it their very business, their very calling among the bride to be the ones who lead the church in the way that we can imitate Christ in the most glorifying manner. It is a holy calling. It is a profound gifting. Not to be scorned or not to be disdained by the church. It is to be held in the highest regard. Those whom God has called and equipped to lead His people in glorifying our Messiah through imitating His compassion for the vulnerable and the disadvantaged, His love for the bride, and in a secondary way, His love for the world. This is a holy calling. 